read aloud verses 1 through 4. If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. For ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. Let's bow together in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for the opportunity to open the Word of God this morning. Thank you for its truth as Christ is revealed therein. And I pray that we might have an understanding of your Word, that we would have truly hearts that receive eyes to see and ears to hear. And may we glean from the teaching which Paul had provided for that church at Colossae so many years ago. We pray that we might have an understanding of how these truths are still obviously true for us as well. And Lord, that we might live according to the grace that we have received as your spirit has called us unto life and as well to holiness. And we pray that we might live our lives sanctified, consecrated unto you as those whom you've redeemed. For we are not our own, but we've been bought with a price. So may we truly glorify you in both body and spirit which belong to you. And may you receive all the glory and all the honor for all this we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you and be seated. To summarize the previous chapters of this epistle, uh, I'm not necessarily going to do much of a review this morning, which is unusual as you're aware. We are going to summarize the previous two chapters leading into this particular chapter, that is chapter 3 as we've read this morning. And to summarize these previous two chapters, Paul exhorted the Colossian believers to acknowledge two truths. Now we remember this is in the face of Gnosticism, of course, as Gnosticism is coming into becoming more prevalent and, and uh, creeping into the church, if you will. And so Paul really emphasizes or exhorts the Colossian believers to acknowledge these two truths, overall summarization of what he stated. First is the preeminence of Jesus Christ. In chapter 1, verses 17 through 19, we read, And he is before all things, speaking of Jesus, and by him all things consist, and he is the head of the body the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. Then in chapter 2 and verse 9 we read, For in him, in Christ, dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. So Paul again is emphasizing the truth that this is the image of the invisible God. Christ is the manifestation of the Son of God in the flesh, of course, representing and reflective, of course, of God the Father being part of the, the triune Godhead. And so Paul is emphasizing the preeminent Christ or the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And number two, he wanted them to acknowledge and exhorted them to acknowledge this truth, and that is the position God had given them in Jesus Christ. In chapter 1, verses 20 through 22, we read, And you, that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh, again, emphasizing this, this manifestation of the Son of God in the flesh, the body of his flesh through death, to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. Chapter 2, verse 10. And ye are complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power. Chapter 2, verse 12. Buried with him in baptism, wherein also ye are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God, who hath raised him from the dead. And so here, Paul emphasizes these two truths, major truths, as he exhorts the Colossian believers in chapters 1 and 2, and of course there's much more within the details, as you are well aware of. We've been months now through this study, but yet you know that the two, you should recognize two major 
emphasis that Paul places and exhorts the believers at Colossae to acknowledge is the preeminent, preeminence of Jesus Christ and as well the position God had given them in Jesus Christ, that they not discount what God had done. Now as we progress our study into chapter 3, we discover that Paul reasons with the Colossian believers concerning the only rational response to the previous truths which he had established in chapters 1 and 2, predominantly these two truths. Christ is preeminent, the Lord Jesus is preeminent, he is Lord, and God has provided you a position in him. And so Paul says, because of this, due to this, there is an expected response. Now when I say expected response, this is more than one attempting to merely measure up to the apostles' uh, standard. That's not what Paul's talking about here. Rather, it is an expected response that is the natural, really supernatural, result of the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who spoke all things into existence and sustains all things as they are, who then was manifested in the flesh, died on our behalf, rose again victoriously on our behalf, that he defeated sin, death, and hell on our behalf, already victorious himself, but gaining that victory on our behalf, and now has redeemed us by grace and, and now, because of all of this, this same Jesus, who his spirit now dwells in us, who are redeemed, how could there not be an expected response to such a redemption by such a Savior? And so Paul is establishing that truth. And he's saying there's an expected response. Not that you live up according to my standards, of course not. No, but there is an expectation from such a redemption. There is, it's just expected, it must be. And so we see that that. Paul is, is going to emphasize that in chapter 3 on our behalf on the, for the Colossian believers. So let me simplify everything that Paul will address in this chapter, okay? And then we're going to work through some of this. Within this chapter, Paul provides both an explanation and an exhortation regarding the Christian life. That really summarizes what's taking place here. Paul explains the description of a genuine Christian life, a life that is Christ-like, one who is a believer. However, Paul is also exhorting the Colossian believers to be intentional and to live purposefully as God has provided for them in the Lord Jesus Christ. While facing all the opposition, which was again rapidly rising through the growth of Gnosticism in that day and within the church. For for our understanding of the chapter, I want to provide you, as I mentioned, an overview of the chapter before we begin to delve into this portion of our study. We'll begin to get into it this morning, into the study to some degree, but I want us to kind of consider an overview of the chapter to put into perspective all that I just said to you so you can see it from the text. This chapter has two major divisions within it, and that is first, verses 1 through 17, and then second, verses 18 through 25. In verses 1 through 17, we read, or we find, that Paul provides the expected and appropriate response According to the position God has provided us in Jesus Christ, as I've mentioned, as one submits to the preeminence of the Lordship of Jesus Christ, living in that provision. And in verses 18 through 25, Paul explains the expected results within the relationships of those who are living in submission to the preeminence or Lordship of Jesus Christ. This is very, of course, akin or similar to Ephesians, as you are aware. Ephesians chapter 5, for instance, and going into chapter 6 as well. And Paul does very much so the same thing here in chapter 3 of his epistle to the church at Colossae. Paul explains that the Christian life 
He explains the Christian life by listing what the Colossian believers were to do, followed by a list of things they were not to do. Now, I said, this is not Paul's list of standards, and I will show you that more in depth as we get more into the study. But he does list these things, but they are based upon, as we'll get to in a moment, they are based on this truth, if, if ye be risen with Christ. And so this is a positional statement that Paul is making. But yet, there is a list of things that Paul gives us. First, he says, seek first the kingdom of God. We read that in verse 1. Second, set your affection on things above, verse 2. And then third, mortify your members in verse 5. So he's listing things that are to be done and things that are not to be done. Mortifying your members, of course, is something to do, but it results in things there that are not being done because you are dead. You recognize yourself dead in Christ. And that goes back to verse 1 of chapter 3, if ye then be risen with Christ. Well, the only way you can be risen with Christ is that first you are identified in the death of Christ, which of course then is our salvation. Paul summarizes how one mortifies their members and how one sets their affection on spiritual things with it really in two statements. So again, we're working through this just an overview. In verses 8 and 9, Paul says, put off. Look at verse 8. But now ye also put off all of these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth, lie not one to another, seeing that ye have put off the old man with his deeds. So he says, he gives us a list here, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication, and lies. He said all these things are to be put off, but then he says because you put off the old man. Now, then he says put on in verses 10 through 14. And have put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond nor free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, longsuffering, forbearing one another and forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. And above all, these things put on charity, or charity, which is the bond of perfectness. So here Paul lists, as he did earlier, about things that are put off, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication, and lies. He now says put on mercy, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, forgiveness, and charity. Now it's important to recognize, as I've kind of already mentioned to you, but it is very important for you to recognize with me that the commands that are given to both put off and to put on, which goes back to Paul's exhortation for these Colossian believers to live intentionally and purposefully in the provision that has been made for them by God the Father in Jesus Christ. So when he says put off and to put on, these commands or these exhortations are, are based or founded upon the position that these Colossian believers had already put off the old man and put on the new man. Let's go back to that for just a moment. If you notice back in verses 8 and 9, he says, but now also, he also put off. He's saying, so you do this. You be intentional about this. Put off anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth. Lie not one to another. Seeing, here it is, that ye have put off the old man with his deeds. So Paul is just explaining some of these deeds that are associated with that old man. He's saying, but you've already put off this old man with his deeds in redemption in Christ. If you are risen, if ye then be risen with Christ. Remember verse 1 of chapter 3. If ye then be risen with Christ, 
He's saying, you've already put off the old man. How is that so? Because I have died with Christ. Again, Galatians 2.20, you're familiar with the verse. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And then Paul clarifies even more so, verse 21, I do not frustrate the grace of God. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness come by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. So even here, Paul is saying positionally, I am dead with Christ. Again, past tense. You notice that? He says, I am crucified, past tense with Christ. Nevertheless, I live present tense. Yet not I, but Christ liveth, present tense in me. And life which I now live, present tense. I live, present tense, by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And he says, I do not frustrate. I now presently do not frustrate or nullify this grace. For I understand that my righteousness is not my salvation, but it is Christ. For if I can obtain salvation of my righteousness, then Jesus died for no reason. His, his death is useless. It means nothing. And so he says, put off. But notice, he says, you have put off the old man in this death with Christ. But then notice verse 10, and have put on the new man. Again, this is something already done. Through redemption in Christ, that old man is put off, the new man is put on. And what Paul is saying, out of this position or from this position of having been dead or, or crucified with Christ, and now having been risen with Christ, if ye then be risen with Christ, Based upon this positional truth, we now are to live accordingly. That's what Paul is saying here. Our lives, this is the expected result. This is the expected response of one who's been redeemed. Let me explain to you and and summarize or condense this even more. And again, you know these verses very well, but 2 Corinthians 5 verse 17. Therefore, if any man be in Christ... He is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new and all things are of God, verse 18 goes on to say. And so we recognize that having been redeemed, we're already a new creature. This is something, we don't make ourselves new. No, we are already new. So in that identity in the death of Christ and identity in his resurrection, the old man is put off, the new man is put on, and Paul is saying If that is true, if that is true, if ye then be risen with Christ, if this is a true reality within your life, then there's going to be results that are evident of this truth that now the old man has been put off and the new man is put on. So we see this is a positional truth that produces a practical outward working. And again, it's righteousness that God has imputed unto us that then results in righteousness being lived out. I know I say this so often, but I believe it's important to to just remind you of this truth. We do not perform righteousness in an attempt to become righteous. We act in righteousness because we have been declared and made righteous in Jesus Christ. So righteousness is what God has done and worked within us, therefore it exudes from us. It comes out from us. It's not, but we are to be intentional and purposeful in recognizing and remembering that God has made us righteous in Jesus Christ. And if God has made us righteous in Jesus Christ, then that is going to be demonstrated and lived out through our lives. And that is what Paul is emphasizing here in this passage. 
So in other words, Paul instructs these believers to behave accordingly, to behave according to the grace they had received from the Lord as indicated in chapter 3, verse 1. Verse 1 of chapter 3, if ye then be risen with Christ. Now, as I previously mentioned, the entirety of Paul's argument concerning this expected response or reasonable response of the Colossian believers was completely based on the position God had provided them in the Lord Jesus Christ. This chapter begins by Paul stating again one word, if. If. In other words, if these things be true, and if you truly are buried and now raised in new life, then the following not only should, but will ensue. So it's not only that these things should be, but these things will be because of Christ living within. Paul had already addressed this matter in chapter 2, if you recall. Chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. As ye therefore receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, as ye have been taught, abounding therein with thanksgiving. So once again, Paul's exhortation in this chapter is a declaration of the expected response within the lives of those who receive Jesus Christ the Lord. Those who have been born again will emanate the evidence of a new life. And anything less, here please, those who are born again genuinely will inevitably emanate the evidence of a new life. And anything less is unreasonable. It, it, it doesn't stand to reason to think that one who has received redemption and the very spirit of this creator that God has, has chosen to create through the Lord Jesus Christ. All things were made by him. Not anything that was made was made unless he made it. And so that being said, Jesus is the creator and the very word of his power creating all things, bringing all things into existence. This same Jesus dwelling in you will inevitably shine through you and his life will be demonstrated through you. Anything else, again, is just unreasonable. These are expected responses, but not expected in the sense that we may often consider the, expect the word expectation to be used. In other words, we'd say, well, this is what we would think would happen because of this. No, this is what will happen because of this, because of Christ in you. How could we think any differently? And so Paul is addressing that again, but he's saying, if, if this be true. So this morning we'll begin to examine now, we'll begin to look into verse 1, Paul's exhortation and as well as explanation of this expected results of those who live in recognition of the preeminence of Jesus Christ, which means one is also living in submission to his lordship. So Paul says, if ye then be risen with Christ, verse 1, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. The verb seek means to look for or desire. So Paul's saying, if you are really risen with Christ, then desire that which is above. Being raised with Christ, in other words, just to summarize and simplify what Paul is saying, to be raised with Christ, to have died with him, and now to be raised with him. And verse 4, Paul says, and when Christ, who is our life, it's not your life, he is your life. And he says, when Christ, who is our life, shall appear. And so to be raised with Christ 
will transform your desires. A believer in Jesus Christ does not have and possess the same desires he had prior to being born again. There is a change that takes place. There are desires that change. When we are dead to self, having been made alive in Christ, remember what this means. If you are risen, that means you have died, which means you no longer possess your own life, and therefore the desires that you once had are now dead. You're dead. How can a dead man desire anything? So you're dead, and the life you have is not your life. It's Christ's life in you. And if it's a resurrected life, and it's no longer your life but his life, then that means that the desires also have changed from what they once were. So when we are dead to self, having been made alive in Christ, which is a new life or a resurrected life, our desires will be derived from the source of our life. You know, physically speaking, there are things we desire. We desire food. Why do you desire to eat? Because you're hungry to live. It's necessary, but you desire to eat because you are alive. A dead person has no desire to eat, right? You are alive, therefore you want to eat. There's things you physically desire, not sinful things, or that too, but there's things that you desire that are not sinful desires that are necessary for you to live. But the reason the desires exist is there's a source life from which these desires emanate. And so because I'm alive, I now have certain desires, physically speaking. Because I'm alive... I desire water. I desire coffee. Because I'm alive, I desire healthy foods like Krispy Kreme. So there's a life within me, physically speaking, that desires things. And Krispy Kreme are not sinful. Just saying. And neither is coffee. There are things that I desire because there's a life source within me, physically speaking. I am alive. And because there's a spirit within this body, I therefore desire things. But when that spirit departs from this body, guess what? The body will no longer desire anything. It's dead. There's no desires left to itself. That's what it means to be crucified with Christ and to be risen. So if we are truly crucified with him, that means that there is no longer a source within ourselves from which desires are now formed, but there is a life within us, not our life, his life, which is now the source of our desires. Now, we still have a sinful nature. I'm not in any way negating that or, or, or refuting that. I understand that we have a sinful nature, and therefore we still sin. But there are new desires now within the believer in Jesus Christ that were not present prior to redemption. So being raised with Christ will transform our desires. Matthew 6, 19-20, Jesus said this, Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth. And this is what Paul is getting to concerning if ye then be risen with Christ, set your affection on things above, or seek first the kingdom of God, or seek things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. In Matthew 6, 19-20, Jesus clarifies this for us when he says, Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, and where thieves do not break through nor steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And what, of course, the Lord was saying there was that what you really cherish and love indicates and exposes the truth of the condition of your heart. 
Notice that Paul emphasizes that our desire is to be based upon the very place in which Jesus, who is our life, now sits at the right hand of God. Let's look at that again, verse 1 of chapter 3. If ye then be risen with Christ, notice what he says. Seek those things which are above where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Oh, it's interesting, isn't it? That our desires, Paul associates what our desires are to be at the very place where the Lord Jesus Christ himself sitteth at the right hand of the throne of God. So in other words, again, these desires are sourced from God, not from us. In Psalm 37.4, and this is a verse that's often misunderstood, I believe, or misunderstood or at least misinterpreted and misused. Psalm 37.4 says, Delight thyself also in the Lord, and he shall give thee the desires of thine heart. Now, most people want that to say, if you delight in God, then he gives you whatever you want. That's not what the verse is actually saying, though. The verse is actually telling us, as we delight in the Lord, then it is the Lord who is the one who determines what it is that we desire. In other words, as we delight in the Lord, he is the author of our desires. So it is not that our desires, in this case, in Psalm 37, 4, it's not that our desires depend on what we want, but it is God who determines what we want, and our desires are now aligned with God's will and God's desires. For instance, before salvation again, before one is is born again, the unregenerate mind and the unregenerate man has no desire to align himself with God's will. Oh, now, he may have a desire to escape judgment and wrath, and he may have a desire to try to do things of his own self-righteousness, but that in of itself is against God's will. That is not aligning with God's will. God's will is for us to understand the gospel in obedience. I think twice in Scripture, the Paul refers to obeying the gospel or either not obeying the gospel. And that's an odd term associated with the gospel when you hear obey or obedience with the gospel because we know the gospel is not something we are doing. So what does it mean to obey or be obedient to the gospel? It means that we are acknowledging the truth of the gospel, submitting ourselves to that truth in obedience unto God. And so when we come to uh, God giving us our desires... Delight thyself also in the Lord, shall give thee the desires of thine heart. It's not that, okay, I'm going to try to, you know, become religious and therefore God will give me what I want because I'm acknowledging God in my life. No, it's that if I'm truly delighting in him, then I will delight in what he delights in, which means my desires and my will is now brought under submission and under subjection to his will and his desires. By the way, the very purpose of prayer is that very thing. Look throughout the scriptures, you see it to be clear and true. Um, as I've said many times, it's not that, that God, is, you know, God is here and we are here, and, we're, and this is how we view it so often, many people do, and I'm praying, oh God, please, please do this, please do this, and all of a sudden, you know, God says, okay, I'll come over here and do what you want me to do. No, really, it's that we can be asking God for whatever it is that we are asking God, but in the end, not my will, but thine be done. You know what just happened? If we are sincerely humble in that before God, here's what happened. It's not bringing God to us, we're coming in alignment with God. And say, okay, I submit to you, Lord. These are my desires. Here are my petitions. But nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. So God isn't moving over to us. We're actually aligning ourselves under him and submission to him. And so when the, when the writer said, the psalmist said, delight thyself also in the Lord, and he shall give thee the desires of the heart. Again, it's that God is now the author of my desires. But how can that be? Because Christ is my life. And now the desires of this life are sourced from the source of life itself which is the Lord Jesus. Paul goes on to say, if he then be risen with Christ, number two, 
set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. The statement, set your affection, means to think or set one's mind on. Again, I told you, Paul is calling the Colossian believers, if you are truly a believer in Christ, if you've truly been risen, that's positional, it's already done. Now he says, being intentional and purposeful in how you live your life. Live accordingly. Not only are our desires to be a result of our life in Christ, but we are also to be intentional concerning the things to which we set our minds or that which we think. Again, Philippians 3, 13 through 14, Paul says, Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto the things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. So the Christian life, or the supernatural life, the spiritual life, is natural for the one in whom the Spirit of God dwells. This is spiritual, it is supernatural, the salvation we've received and the life that ensues, it is a spiritual, supernatural working of God. But if it's His Spirit that's living within, then it is a natural result of His Spirit living within. I want to lay something out for you. There are people who have a terrible time attempting to live the Christian life. Do you know why that is? Because they are attempting to live the Christian life. The difficulty is not living the Christian life. The difficulty is submitting to the truth that it is not our life but Christ who's living in us. The issue is getting us out of the way. We, we want to, as it's often been said, we want to resurrect a body that is dead rather than live in the resurrected life of Christ. And so the struggle, the Hebrew writer says, we'll get to that eventually on Wednesdays, Lord willing, but the Hebrew writer says concerning the day of provocation, how that they entered not into the promises of Jews, talking to the Jews, of course, Israel. And he says they entered not into the promise, um, and, and, and the day of provocation, of course, they, they provoked the Lord, that is, by their rebellion and, and their disobedience and, and their pride, and on and on it goes. And so he says they entered not into the rest. And remember, Joshua and Caleb went in, of that first generation, and then the other generation who God raised up in the wilderness comes in with them into the promised land into Canaan, but yet the others never got a chance to go in because of their unbelief. And in that situation, the scripture goes on to say in Hebrews, let us therefore labor to enter into that rest. And the whole problem that we have is resting. That's the struggle. We want to be, we want to do, we want to become whenever it's not resting in Christ and in God's provision for us. He is our Sabbath. He is our peace with God. He is our rest. And so we are to rest in him. And that is the difficulty. And so it's not that we are attempting to live a Christian life. That's not the point here. But we are intentional and purposeful in recognizing God's provision for us that now his life might be lived through us unto his glory and to his honor, which again, is a, it's intentional and purposeful. So though again, the Christian life, the supernatural spiritual life is one in whom the spirit of God dwells, at the same time, the Christian life is not a passive life and can never be viewed carelessly. And we are warned against that over and over in Scripture. Jesus, who is the greatest example of a life lived in worship to and worship of the Father, lived sacrificially, submissively, intentionally, in obedience to the will of the Father. 
We as followers of Christ are to submit our lives and intentionally follow after the example of our Lord. Verses 3 and 4. For you're dead. Well, that's encouraging, isn't it? But it is. You're dead. And your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. These two verses explain the power behind such an exhortation which Paul provided. We are dead to ourselves and alive unto Christ. And it is Christ who is our life. So because of this, again, this is just, it just stands to reason. That because Christ is our life, we are dead with him. We are resurrected with him. He is our life. We have a resurrected life, a new life. We are to seek things above intentionally. We are to set our minds on things above, not being overwhelmed and overcome by all the weight of the world, which is all around us all the time. Yes, we have to do worldly things. I don't mean sinful, but we have to, we have to live in a world that is sinful. Yes, we have to work jobs. Yes, we have to provide for families. Yes, we have to care for our children, so on and so forth. But the fact of the matter is these things are not to be the end result or goal. We are not to focus and have our attention set in this horizontal plane as though this is all there is and this is what we got to get the most out of all of this that we can. But we are to have an eternal perspective. We are to be vertically uh, focused rather than horizontally focused looking to Jesus. And where is Jesus? At the right hand of the throne of God. And so we are to look to him. And so these verses, you are dead. Your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ who is our life shall appear, then ye shall also appear with him in glory. We are to seek things above. We are to set our minds to things above because it is Christ who is our life. And one day we will appear with him in his glory. That is the end result. And if that is truly the end result, what Paul is saying is, if, if this is where you were and this is where you will be, then there's going to be a continual transition of what you are right now or how you appear to be right now. John said it like this. He that hath this hope in him purifieth himself even as he is pure. So those who have this hope, those who have this confidence in them, those who purify themselves even as he is pure, it's his purity, not yours. It's as he is pure in the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. So if ye then be risen with Christ, Paul is explaining what this means and then exhorting them. Again, these are the emphasis in the previous chapters, the preeminence of Christ and the position God's provided you in Christ. So if this be true, if Jesus is truly preeminent, if Jesus, let me say it to you like this, I'm finished. If Jesus is truly Lord, then live like he's Lord. If Jesus If you truly have a position in him in that you've been made and declared righteous by God the Father in Christ, then live accordingly. That's what Paul is saying. Intentionally, purposefully, and never passively. Let's stand together in prayer. Father, we do thank you for the opportunity to open.